1: This is the place where the explicit language warning goes. But on this podcast, there is none. But I still have to say it. Otherwise, it could be claimed under the laws of eminent domain. It's Tuesday, July 19th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. The more I read about and study the bill that Joe Manchin sank like so much Miami beachfront property, if you go by the current estimates, the more I, well, I don't despair, but I don't like it. Don't like it one bit. It's not just the climate impact of his intransigence, it's the tax code, the international tax code apparently has been put in disarray because Joe Manchin made some promises and then backed out. Don't like it one bit. However, I got to say, Joe Manchin's not dumb. He might be a lot of things like Venal, maybe, and Two-Faced, and Aquatically Domiciled, but he's not a stupid man. He wasn't acting against his own self-interest. There was a large portion, one of the uh, big tax breaks in the bill that would help the environment was for EVs, electronic vehicles. And as much as you can't spell West Virginia without E and V, check it, look at it closely. Yeah, they're both in there. West Virginians just do not have EVs. The entire state of West Virginia, by last count, had 600 electric vehicles. This might seem low compared to California's half a million, but it is low. Okay, West Virginia is not that populous a state. Well, neither is Hawaii. Fewer people in West Virginia, they have 10,600. In West Virginia, if you're a one in a thousand type of guy, you don't have an EV. You have to be one in 3,000 to have an electric vehicle. So He's not really violating the trust of his constituencies by voting against at least that portion of the bill or not voting against, just opposing it. You know, he's dumb and he doesn't get called dumb. He gets called reckless and brash and attention-seeking. He's Elon Musk. But I gotta say in this situation, the guy's dumb. The guy's just dumb. $12,500 rebate, a coupon to customers to buy your product. What, What, you know... In marketing, like, well, do we ever discount the Tesla? Well, of course, that would boost sales. But of course, that would also eat into our profit. And we want to have an air of exclusivity around Tesla. So that's another reason why we can't offer or don't want to offer some sort of discount. Oh, no, wait a minute. The government's coming over the top with a discount of their own. We don't even have to do anything. We just tell our potential customers, hey, you get this $12,500 off. But Elon Musk doesn't even have his caca together enough to advocate for that because there was a portion in the bill had joe manchin passed it or favored it there was a section that said tesla wouldn't be getting that tax break because it was only going to unionize shops and tesla isn't so that's why you cajole so that's why you lobby so that's why you have a public facing persona that is able to engage with one or two Democrats in a bill like this. No one is saying, "Okay, you don't get the tax break. It's all about giving the tax break. So if one or two senators who are in Elon Musk's good graces and vice versa were to say, you have to relax this for the non-union U.S. EV manufacturers, it would pass. There would have been a huge rebate in this bill if there were a bill, thanks to Joe Manchin. But Elon Musk, I mean, 99 out of 100 CEOs would have attended to that. And that one CEO who didn't, he's Elon Musk, and he's still fighting with Twitter for a brash and bullheaded offer that he now regrets. I think people, most people, look at the Twitter Entanglement of Mr. Musk, and say, well, he was really stupid to pick that fight. What I'm saying, he was short-sighted, bordering on stupid, over this—a battle that he failed to engage in. On the show today, I shall spiel about those hot temperatures all over Europe. It's hot here too, you know. But let's talk about Europe, where. They don't need air conditioning, except for years and years, they do need air conditioning. It's enough to fry your haggis. But first, we've talked about Brittany Griner before. She's detained in Russia. She's being offered as possibly as part of a trade. And the person said to be on the other end of that trade is a U.S. detainee named Victor Boot. What about Boot? Who is he? He is the subject of the book Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Makes War Possible. The author of that book and investigator, Douglas Farah, is up next.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify.
1: For 11 years, Victor Boot has been sitting in a U.S. prison known as the Merchant of Death or the Lord of War. His 2008 arrest was a major coup for U.S. law enforcement, who is tracking this arms dealer and terrorist supporter, or at least supplier, for years and years. Douglas Farah, Longtime Washington Post reporter, who is now president of IBI Consultants, LLC, wrote about Boot and the international chase for him in Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Makes War Possible. And the reason Victor Boot is in the news is he's being offered as a possible bargaining chip or trading partner for detained American, Brittany Griner. Doug, welcome to The Gist.
2: Thank you very much.
1: When did you first hear about and then start investigating Victor Boot?
2: I first heard about Victor Boot when I was covering the wars in Liberia as the Washington Post West Africa bureau chief. And there were all of these reports of these, of the, these Russian airplanes landing with weapons. And, and it was, this is was a particularly brutal war. If you'll recall, there were child soldiers. There was the massive use of amputations of arms, legs of civilians, populations by both Charles Taylor's troops and the. Insurgency. he was supporting next door in Sierra Leone, all revolving around diamonds. And that was pretty alarming. And then we began talking to some UN investigators who had been hearing the same thing and had the facility to go out to some of the airfields where these planes had been landing and realized it was the same aircraft landing again and again. And from there, we started looking and we kept hearing the person's name was Victor. You know, Victor was this, Victor was that. We didn't know who Victor was uh, initially, of course. And then eventually we began to put the pieces together and then began seeing... uh, Uh, him appearing and reporting. I think the first public mention of him was uh, in the floor of the British Parliament when one of the parliamentarians stood up and called him the merchant of death because the Brits had been tracking him. And that's where he got his name from, Mm -hmm. his moniker from.
1: Did you at first, when you heard about Victor, think he was a real person or an amalgam like a Kaiser Soze type?
2: I wasn't sure because there were a lot of strange people floating around West Africa in the diamond weapons world. Like we were, you know, we there was one aircraft unrelated to Victor Booth that had belonged to the Seattle Supersonics. that was delivering it, and when we tracked the airplane, we're like, "Wow, okay, where did? (laughs) How did that happen?" Right. Um, So there were all of these sort of fantastical things happening in a very murky and bizarre world. Uh, So we weren't sure. I wasn't sure initially, but uh, then we, you know, it became clear that there was one guiding force on a lot of these weapons coming in.
1: When you began pulling the string on Boot, what did you find beyond Liberia?
2: Well, what we found initially was that he was the provider to some of the most vicious, I would say, warlords, gangs that were taking over Central West Africa at the time. As you recall, the Cold War ended and the sort of the mantra was, we have this new era of peace. And, and it turned out not to be that way. It turned out that people who could take over a diamond mine uh make enough money doing that to buy more weapons could take over more diamond mines and the brutality surrounding that and the phenomenon of child soldiers where you you know abduct an eight-year-old burn his village make him kill his own parents often and then that psychologically traumatized person is then sent out to war on your behalf is a tremendously brutalizing force i mean it's just, just you know in dealing with these kids the the impact of what we were seeing Sierra Leone, Liberia, Democratic Republic of Congo, also happening in Angola, I didn't cover the Angola part of it, but we are like, holy cow, like you have to be some sort of madman, one like Charles Taylor too, generate all this intuitive, just dump weapons into these facilities where traditionally the killing had been done by hunting rifles and machetes. So if you start introducing massive amounts of AK-47s, rocket propelled grenades, light anti-tank weapons into these wars, the, the human cost goes up, you know, many, many fold.
1: We all know that the crime was putting weapons in the arms of people who would kill children, but it seems like you could argue maybe he was, okay, falsifying a manifest or breaking some sort of, uh, maybe breaking some sort of bureaucratic code. That is a little less than Merchant of Death to me.
2: Yes, I think what struck, where the name Merchant of Death came from, it became clear that it was the single network supplying multiple wars, and not only multiple wars, both sides of multiple wars. I mean, the most fascinating case was in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was Zaire at the time when the longtime dictator Mobutu was getting all his weapons from Victor Boot while Boot was supplying the army that was about to overthrow him. And as the army that was overthrowing him swept into power, he flew out on a plane that belonged to Victor Boot. (laughs) It was like, wow. And when we asked people like, why didn't you kill Victor Boot if he was supplying your enemy? And one guy said, and it was perfect. You don't kill the mailman. He was the person who could could deliver and he could, the fact he was delivering to everybody, but he was also delivering to us. You know, you don't shoot the mailman.
1: How does uh, Victor Boot get involved in South American wars or the FARC or Colombia?
2: Well, there was eventually, because of his activity in Belgium, he had set up a a hub of operation out of Belgium. The Belgians eventually got an Interpol Red notice against him, uh, issued against him for his arrest. So he went back to Moscow, uh, where he was under the protection. He had been a creature, he was a former Soviet intelligence officer the Soviet Union falls. He sort of goes on his own, builds this big empire, and at this time in the early 2000s, uh, Putin was beginning to reconsolidate the intelligence structures and in Russia it back into something more consolidated, more coherent than it had been. So they're pulling Victor Putin anyway. They, they're cutting his leash a little bit to do his own operations, not to do state operations. And he had been flying after after 9/11. He had been flying into uh, Afghanistan. He had been flying into Iraq. He had been doing all these things with the U S knowledge and permission, making tons of money from the U S making tons of money from the Brits. And then suddenly he was like, oh, he's a bad guy. Okay. So he goes back to Moscow for protection. And I think basically he just gets bored. He, he, people loved, he described him as loving to be in the field. Like he would fly his helicopter into the mountains of Congo and go camping and game hunting. He could fly his helicopters wherever he wanted. And he was, he liked that being stuck in Moscow, especially in the winter time was not much fun. And so I think when the opportunity came up to deal with what turned out to be DEA informants, but what he thought were FARC representatives, I think he was chomping at the bit to get out of Russia and do something fun again.
1: So he never actually flew weapons to the FARC? It was all uh, a ruse set up by government agents?
2: It was groups that the, the DEA had used on a similar operation against another big uh, weapons merchant out of Spain. And they used the same basic uh, team to go uh, after Victor, offering what they, you know, what the, the, it was easier to prove in the case of someone like the FARC, some group like the FARC in Colombia, which is a designated terrorist organization that had killed Americans and kidnapped Americans. So the, if you can, if the person wants to kill Americans, knowingly wants to kill Americans, and wants to sell weapons to a terrorist, a designated terrorist organization, and the FARC was one of only two organizations in the world that was both a major drug trafficking organization designated and a terrorist organization designated, that would provide the legal way to put them out of business.
1: So are, you're giving me the sense: is this the case that U.S. foreign policy was to get this? Uh, chess piece off the chessboard. It would be very hard to do that or much more complicated to do that in the in the main area of his operations, which was West Africa. You'd have to rely on international law, maybe or Interpol or The Hague or whatever. So if the US just got him in a sting involving Colombia and the FARC, it would be cleaner and that's essentially what happened.
2: Uh I would say there's a little more to it than that in the sense that boot through an intermediary was looking for the FARC. They didn't invent the FARC as his clients. He was looking for okay them.
1: he wasn't he wasn't entrapped right. He wasn't
2: yeah. entrapped and and because he was looking for them, and they they got one of his informants who had also worked on the other case had talked to the guy who was looking for the FARC they'd wait a minute, okay, here's a chance maybe to get him into something we could actually we could actually work with. but he he had actively looked for the FARC and was offer, try, offering them weapons before they dived into it.
1: So it sounds like he's making a lot of money. He's capitalizing on the fact that the Soviet Union has uh, fallen apart. He has access to the means to supply weapons. He does supply weapons. Why would Putin care and want to defend the guy or or rescue the guy, essentially? What was any of that in Russia's interest?
2: That's, that's a good question and one I, I don't fully understand because I don't think I know enough about the Russian side to know that. We know that he came out of the Soviet state out of the Soviet intelligence structures, which are very dear to Putin's heart, obviously. I think the fact that you had a Russian that was that is in U.S. custody for crimes of, uh, or for the actions of selling Russian weapons abroad is probably somewhat hurtful to how the Russians view what happened. And I think, and his wife, uh, Victor Booth's wife, has waged a long and very effective campaign in Russia portraying this as entrapment that he was innocent that he didn't do any of the things they said he did and she's been at it for a long time the the Russian Duma the parliament has you know passed declarations saying you know free Victor Boot so i think it's a culmination of a way to get him back. I personally don't think that he's particularly operative in the weapons world anymore. It's the world has changed too much since he's been in prison. But I think that it's a way to bring someone back. that has been sort of a sore spot for Russia for a long time, probably not a, a hugely high priority for the Russians. But if they can get that for something, you know, especially now, as their eyes are being blackened in Ukraine and stuff, they probably view it as, a, as an option.
1: Is Victor Boot as well known in Russia as Brittany Griner is in the U.S.?
2: probably not in terms of sustained you know, attention, but people knew who he was definitely. When he was arrested, it was a really big deal in Moscow. And Russia moved a lot of levers. He was arrested in Thailand and they moved a lot of levers to keep get him not to be extradited, to get him sent back to Russia, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that from the beginning, he's been yeah, pretty well known and probably maybe not the same as, as Greiner, but certainly he's not an unknown subject there.
1: So that implies to me that maybe what Putin wants isn't the what he represents, what boot represents in terms of uh, operation or bringing uh, someone in from the cold who you know still has value to them. But it would be a PR coup. It would be a way right. to give a little bit of a black eye to the United States, but also help Putin's own standing as uh, having saved this. Perhaps people see him as a hero or at least someone unjustly detained.
2: I think that's exactly right. I don't think they can plug him in, in and play him in the their own world of weapon sales now because this fifteen years it's built on trust. That world is is built on relationships he no longer has. They're not really they don't really care about West Africa. You know, all of those things have sort of moved on to in, in the years since he's been, he's now, been, he was actually arrested in, in 2008. So we're talking, you know, 14, 15 years since he's been out of action.
1: So the headline of your Politico piece was opinion, take the deal. Britney Griner in exchange for the merchant of death and the headline in USA Today by a guy named Rob Zach that's his uh, nickname, or I guess, Namda DA, I helped capture Russia's merchant of death. We must not swap him for Britney Griner. I want to take a step back. I know that this was proposed in the media, but do either of you guys know that this is really on the table? The actual deal is something other than, I don't know, an idea that maybe smart people have.
2: I don't know what Rob Zach knows. He's a friend, and I respect his opinion. I, 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 we, we've been friends for since we started working together on <laughs> some of the Victor Booth stuff. Um, the only thing I know for sure is that the Russian officials have confirmed it. The Russians are talking about it. How seriously it's been undertaken uh, on the U.S. side, I, I don't know. There's a lot of reporting in Politico and other sort of reputable organizations that this is on the table, probably more of a two-for-one with uh, some of the other U.S. prisoners being held in, in Russia for boot, not just a one-to-one deal. Um, but uh, but how serious that is, I don't know.
1: What I want to know is just, I want to put what Rob Zach's central argument is, is that it would uh, incentivize not so much that one is more he's so morally reprehensible, we can't give him away. But the incentivization would be things like further detaining Americans so that Putin can, you know, get his uh, get his people free or at least expand his own PR agenda and that it would send a really bad message to other Bad actors in the world about, you know, escape hatches should they get caught and therefore maybe they will continue with their nefarious deeds. What do you think of those?
2: I think that that is a, you know a strong argument i don't i don't think it's it's nonsense at all. I think in the case of Brittany, because unlike everyone else I mean she was going to play professional basketball if she wasn't passing through she wasn't doing you know, a tourist thing she wasn't on an excursion she wasn't just going out. she was there at the invitation of a Russian team to play basketball in russia so I think that pu- puts her in a different category than some of the other people who while unjustly taken were may you know they weren't there. With explicit reasons at the invitation of a Russian organization, and I think that's what makes Britain a bit, a bit different. So I don't think, I, and I think, as I, as I argued in my piece, at this point. Boot has no utility in the field of the brutality he he was involved in. I think that some of the pieces that have been written have, have sort of glossed over the his past, and I think I tried hard not to do that in my piece. Explaining well, exactly. I think
1: that's I think that's what gave it a lot of ballast. That if Doug Farah is saying who's chronicled him more than anyone and has detailed his misdeeds more than anyone, if even he says that this is an acceptable trade, we should listen. You have standing.
2: Well, thank you. Yes. Well, I, I, you know, that the point, I think that it's someone like, like Brittany is at, I think probably at, at risk her professional career is going to, you know, be endangered going forward. It seemed to me there was conditions that made her situation different from, from everyone else's and the giving up boot disp- despite giving Putin a victory of some sort, it's not gonna matter much in the US. The US isn't aware of Victor Boot and they're not gonna say in people's hair, and going to say, oh my God, we let him go. I think the Russians will trump it up and this may say, you know, we want something. Okay, you know, in their world, they're gonna do that with anything they get. Um so it seems to me in a hum- in purely humanitarian terms that it's is, is something one should do. Um but I think that people like Rob Zakasev who put their people on the line to get their arrest and all done, I I I, I I I understand that argument completely. I just think that the other outweighs it a bit.
1: What should we look for in terms of developments, next shoes to drop, indications that this trade, in fact, might take place?
2: I think that you know, at some point, the U.S. is going to have to address it. As far as I know, I haven't seen any U.S. officials saying yes or no, or maybe we're interested. I've only seen the Russian side saying that. Um, I think a lot will depend on how the DEA and NSC weighs in with the Biden administration on this. If there's a what their take is on what the cost benefit analysis would be. Um, And obviously Brittany has a lot of people putting pressure on the other side, uh, so I think uh, you know I think the real thing will be one public comment and two, if people are watching the Marion uh, Indiana facility where boot is if there's something a lot of activity there, <laughs> uh, right, then right. He, he might be he might be getting ready to to head out. you know his lawyer is not is his lawyer is very adamant that they want it to happen, but it is, in reading what he has said carefully myself, I don't see any indication that he's indicating that there are serious movement in that direction
1: might an indication come from an off-the-record source that could alert those of us paying attention, okay, this is real in movement in this case?
2: I would guess so. And I think that probably was I've seen in other cases in the past is usually you find out from the from the prison warden that the, their prisoners are now being prepared for, for transportation out. But I think because this case is so... Was, relatively high profile, I would imagine that there will be leaks in DC about it and see what's uh, see, see, at least as, as it becomes possible. And people can either leak it to sabotage it or leak it to try to make it happen more, you know, increase the chances of it happening. So I, I, I don't know what side the leak will come from, but it should be interesting.
1: Douglas Farah is president of IBI Consultants. They are a limited liability corporation, in case you were wondering. He's a long-term veteran of the Washington Post, where he reported on many stories, including one that became Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and The Man Who Makes War Possible. Doug, thanks so much.
2: Mike, thank you. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it.
1: And now the spiel. Bob Dylan once sang, horseplay and disease is killing me by degrees. But these days, it's the degrees that are the disease and how we experience them and how we conceive of them are important. The headlines in the U.S. are that the U.K. is experiencing 104 degree temperatures. Okay, that's hot. And the U.K. usually isn't. It does share a latitude with Canada. So 104 is not just the record, but... It was a milestone. Why? Because 104 here is... The UK has just exceeded 40 degrees Celsius. While around here, you wouldn't hear non-Celsius conversant Americans saying, I can't believe it's above 104. Not 104. Plenty of English people were marvelling and suffering at their record-breaking number, saying, I can't believe it's 40. Temperatures in the high 30s, maybe low 40s across some eastern parts of England. We'd like to see temperatures go to 40, 41, or possibly even 42 degrees.
0: And you'll notice, of course, that my thermometer is already seeing over 40 degrees. England, a country better known for its rainy and rather miserable weather, certainly not for 40 degree plus temperatures.
1: Conings- be Lincolnshire, the hottest so far, with a provisional reading 40.3 Celsius. Also, that's also the first time in the UK we have had a temperature above 40 degrees. There are strange things to the Celsius scale. I will go ahead and say deficiencies. But there are also some strange benefits, just in terms of conceptualising what the weather means. So the highs yesterday were actually a bit over 40, 40.3 degrees in Celsius, which beat the previous record of mm, approaching 39 degrees. So if you think about that, the difference between 40 degrees and 39 degrees, it's a degree. But in Fahrenheit, the old high was 101.6. The new high is 104.5, thus blowing the old high out of the by now nearly boiling water. Celsius does a better job at some points in their scale, however. 40 degrees, like we said, that's about 104, okay? It's extremely hot for a human. 20 degrees Celsius, that's about 68, which is pretty close to ideal. But when a Fahrenheit thinker says, oh, it went from 68 to 104, sure, it makes an impact because we conjure up what those numbers mean and imagine feeling that on our skin. But to a Celsius thinker, It makes the point much more clearly to say the temperature doubled from 20 to 40. Oh my God, from a nice day to this horrid day. And while half of 40 degrees Celsius is 20 degrees Celsius, as I just said, a drop of 34 degrees in our Fahrenheit world, if you halve it once again from 20 to 10, then you only... Increase your Fahrenheit day from 68 degrees to 50 degrees so why this happens you can probably figure this out is Celsius to Fahrenheit is unlike most other imperial system to metric measurements because with say centimeters to inches or liters to gallons with those there is a constant multiplier but temperature has that plus 32 or multiply by five ninths thing which is an offset scale it means that to calculate disease you have to practically have an advanced one degree not really but what a pun double the number of centimeters grams or kilometers You just double the number of inches, ounces, and miles. Doesn't work that way with degrees. This does affect our perception, and perception does affect our experience. There's some research that expressing the goal of global warming as trying to limit the rise in surface temperatures so the Earth doesn't exceed pre-industrial levels by 1.5 Celsius is not that effective to us Fahrenheit thinkers. Three degrees Fahrenheit might do a better job. Does this rate as interesting? I hope so, because now we're going to talk about interest rates. at CNBC.
0: Um, what sort of environment are we, are we entering um, in terms of the economy at this point with 100 basis points on the table?
1: Well, the environment's hot. We established that in the beginning, and so is the economy. But the basis point, or the basis for the basis point talk, is the rate at which the Federal Reserve sets their key interest Fed fund rate. Fed fund for everyone! But let's be clear, as Kamala Harris would say, a basis point, what that means is a hundredth of a point. The rate of that Fed fund rate that I talked about, it's 1.75. If they raise it 75 basis points, it means they're going to raise it to Mm 2.5. But the talk and maybe the reality is of 100 basis points, which I guess sounds big and I guess is, but it's really just another way of saying, we're going to raise that rate by 1%. It is not so hard that you have to invent a new gradation. What's the effect of speaking in basis points, of speaking in hundredths of a point? Well, I think it makes, at least those who use the language, focus on the importance of even small steps. And they are important. In fact, they're not even small. It's just that the language we have for them makes it seem so. If our only units were miles and we were the size of mountains, we wouldn't much note the difference between a pygmy shrew and a kangaroo. David Labson, a Harvard professor of economics who leads that university's Foundations of Human Behavior Initiative, thinks about how our conceptions
2: lead to actions. We need to stop talking about things that, that are difficult for people to have an intuition for, like two degrees Fahrenheit. And start talking about, especially Celsius, that's, I mean, very bizarre for anyone in the U.S. to be talking about Celsius. They don't know their audience. We need to talk about things that the public can get
1: their head around. He says finer gradations would help. What really could help is an easy translation of, say, one degree rise in Celsius to a foot rise in sea levels outside a city, or maybe conjure for the listener, which block of the city will be underwater. So don't say, oh, it's a one degree rise in Celsius. We'd say, and that would be 15 blocks of Boston underwater. That's the amount of temperature rise. Now, we don't need this assist when trying to conceptualize how degrees affect our skin Right. So we don't really need a little assist when it comes to Celsius or Fahrenheit as far as the weather on our bodies, but how the planet responds. That is not something we intuit, but we can be made to. Words and concepts, if they're fine tuned, lead to action or at least can. Now, of course, no amount of reconceptualizing the rise in temperatures into smaller and smaller units akin to the basis point, that's not going to get Joe Manchin to say, oh, I hadn't thought of that when it comes to climate change. Screw you, Cole. Put that on my bumper sticker. But of course, at the same time, he is saying, well, I had thought of that when it comes to inflation and 100 basis points, that's a lot and that probably does affect his thinking. So see, I brought it back 360 degrees, which is a dizzying 380 Fahrenheit. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara, assistant producer, found 15 more basis points, clips of sound that we didn't use. Sorry for the extra work, Corey, but now we have them in house. All your basis points are belong to us. While backpacking through Europe, senior producer Joel Patterson picked up the Ray Bradbury classic Celsius 232. Michelle Pesca, CEO of Peachfish Productions, has been known to give evasive children the third degree, adding, you're lucky this would be the 16th degree in most of the world. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Peru, G Peru, And one final thought, in Europe, does Kevin Bacon have minus 14 degrees of separation? Do Peru, and thanks for listening.